I want to welcome you guys for, as we continue our season of Advent, uh, we're in our third week, the second week through our sermon series, He is Our King. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. We're actually going to just jump right in. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 23 is where we've been for the last couple weeks. He is our king, and I'm thankful for the worship team for reminding us all throughout this morning, really maybe an aspect of the Christmas season that we don't think about as much, and that is the kingship of Jesus, and that's what Matthew, the gospel writer, is reminding us. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, it's a bit of a a longer passage, so we're going to go ahead and read that. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called Magi secretly and found from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. As we learned last week, you know, his, his little servants are probably on the side going, yeah, right, yeah, right, right? Because we knew what happened last week, right? Verse 9, and they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming to the house. They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to here, they returned to their country by another route. Verse 13, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in the town of called Nazareth, which is the reason why, as Jesus comes on the scene, they speak of him as coming from Nazareth, a small, podunk, little, unheard-of town in the middle of nowhere. 
began this journey last week, and there is no possible way I can do a review of last Sunday. Okay? <laughs> Hope you find that funny, because it is funny. I'm not even going to try to review last Sunday. All I can say about last Sunday was we dug into this passage, went back 2,000 years, and historically asked the question, what did it mean for them? What did it mean for them? And essentially it could be summed up in this question. The Magi essentially come and ask Herod, who is the king? Who is the king? And he's also in that question asking all of us listeners 2,000 years later, who is king? Is it Herod? Is Herod king? Or is it this baby who is king? Is Herod king? Is power king? Is wealth king? Is influence king? Or is Jesus king? And the emphatic declaration from last Sunday was that Jesus is king. This week then, we turn the corner and we ask this question as we do this three-part sermon series. And that is, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us? And I felt the Holy Spirit this morning, entire morning, just going, Peter, just jump in. They're right there, so just jump in. So I'm just going to jump in, okay? Here we go. What does it mean for us? You ask the question, what is it that evokes this violence? It's a very violent passage. Wars, battle. It's a very violent passage, Matthew chapter 2. And when you ask the question, what, is it, what, is, what evokes this, this violence, you realize that the Magi don't come, unlike today, to the king and ask this question. Where is the personal Savior who's been born? The question isn't, where is the personal Savior who, if we come to him with our needs, he'll meet our needs. Where's the personal Savior, if we come to him with our problems, he'll help with those problems. Where's the personal Savior, if we come to him with our guilt, he'll forgive our guilt. Because if they had come done that, everybody would have said, great, let's go. Where is he? But they don't. Their question is, where is he who has been born? What? The king. That's the question. Why does that evoke this violence? When a king lands in a land where there's already a king claiming kingship, there's going to be war. Can I say that once more? When a king lands in a land where there's already kingship, king claiming kingship, there's going to be war. The problem, magi come, and they're looking, listen very carefully, not for a personal savior to meet our needs, but for a what? Uh, Say with me, a king. That's the reason why when Jesus comes into our lives, not just as personal savior, but as king, it feels like our life is being wrecked. Let me say it this way. If you're a Christian and you haven't had the experience of getting the wind knocked out of you by this Jesus, I'm afraid you may not have encountered the real king. I'm afraid that you may not see the real Jesus of Matthew 2. I love C.S. Lewis's analogy. You've heard me say it many times before. For many of us, when we become a Christian, this is what it looks like. I like my little cottage, and I just need a little makeover. So Jesus, I need you to come into my life, my little cottage, do a little paint job, a little rust over there. 
missing a couple handles in my cabinet. That's what I'd like you to do. And the next thing we know is that Jesus is in a bulldozer coming straight at us in our little cottage. And we're freaking out going, whoa, I didn't want all that. And Jesus' answer is, I'm not about to give you a little touch-up in your little cottage. I'm about to level that cottage and build you a castle, a castle fit for a king. See, the problem with us, many of us, is that when Jesus comes into our lives, he wrecks our cozy little existence because we're knocked off from sitting on the throne of our lives. That's why you feel like the wind is getting knocked out of you. That's what it feels like when you're king of your own little throne and Jesus comes and says, I claim kingship. And that feels like, poof, are you serious? When Jesus comes into your life, he starts renewing our hearts. But there's a part of our heart that the Bible calls the flesh that's always fighting against the claims of his kingship, not the offer of his salvation, the claim of his sovereignty and his kingship. Jesus comes, you see, not just saying, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. That's great. It feels wonderful. Take my yoke upon you. That's great. It's wonderful news, for I will give you rest. But this Jesus also came saying what? Unless you deny yourself and take up your cross, you cannot be my disciple. Unless you hate your father and mother for my sake, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Unless you lose your life, you lose your very life, you will never find it. Be willing to cut off your right hand. Be willing to pluck out your right eye. Be willing to do all those things rather than losing me. Why? Because nothing is worth losing me. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Jesus Christ comes not just saying, I'm your Savior. He comes saying, I am your, say it with me, King. Matthew 2. Have you encountered this King? Not just your Savior. Jesus comes and says in Matthew 1, uh, Mark chapter 1, his ministry is the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Here's what it means if Jesus is your king. It means that he can demand anything. It means that a relationship with him is all-encompassing, limitless in commitment, all-absorbing, and will affect every area of your life. Jesus comes and says, when you come into a relationship with this king, everything changes. And one of the things that changes is, I don't come into your life to help you manage your kingdom. I don't come into your life just to help you. See, we buy into this myth, and the myth is this, that when I become a Christian, my life gets better. And here's what better means. My life is going to go on as scheduled, as planned. But God's just going to enter into the equation. God and me, side by side. And it's great. My co-pilot, my co-driver. And God says, I don't do that. When I come into your life, everything changes. When I come into your life, we say, Jesus, I want to fit you into my life. And Jesus says, you can't put me in your life. You have to put you in my life. Some of you are going, well, I don't want to be a Christian then. I don't want to be a follower of Jesus. Because I was perfectly happy with the little controlled world that I lived in. Can I ask you a question? Were you really? Were you really happy with the little controlled world that you live in? Do you like the one that's responsible to hold it all together? Does that feel really good? Do you like the one that needs to make everything happen? 
Do you want to be the one holy? How is that going? Because the Bible tells us that our hearts were designed to know, to love, and to worship and serve our God. If we, if we center our life in anything else, if we make God orbit around our lives instead of us orbiting around God, Bible says disintegration result. Everything will follow. That's why some of you sitting here going on, my life is falling apart. The Bible says unless you're centered on him, everything will fall apart. He holds all things together. Do you want Jesus to come and join your world? That's the question this morning. Or do you want Jesus that is so compelling that you're saying, you know, it doesn't even matter. I'm coming with you. You're king. I'm coming. It doesn't even matter where you're going. You want Jesus that's so beautiful, compelling, you go, it doesn't even matter where you're going. I'm coming with you. You're king. You lead, I follow. See, this is the reason why John Stott in Basic Christianity says something that C.S. Lewis said too. Listen very carefully. He said, no one, ever, no one who ever met Jesus Christ ever responded moderately to him. Listen, nobody who really encountered Jesus thought, nah, nice guy. I admire him. Good man. Good dude. Nobody. He goes on and he says this. The only three things that you ever see anybody doing when they meet the real Jesus is either they run away from him in terror or they assault him with fury or else they prostrate themselves in utter surrender. Either terror or fury or complete surrender. But nobody ever responded to Jesus moderately. Why? He claimed to be, say it with me, king. And you'll either be violently for him or violently against him. You know what I hear all the time? I hear people go, you know, I hate the church. But I like Jesus. Anybody say that? I hate you. I'm interested in Jesus, not the church. Listen, I'm not going to defend the church, not even ours. Because one of the main problems of church is, is that we rarely resemble Jesus. Well, when somebody says to flippantly, you know, I hate the church, but I like Jesus, I want to go, have you met the real Jesus? Because if you have, don't say so easily that you admire him, that you like him. He has not left that as an option. Terror. Fury, utter surrender. There is none else. Is Jesus your king? If he is, and your response to him is one of, meh. A lukewarm, tepid response to him shows you have not encountered him. Are you saying around going, you know, I should really make room in my life for Jesus. As if Jesus goes, will you please? Room for Jesus, room for career, room for marriage, room for... Jesus goes, I don't want to be in your life. He says, I want to be your life. All of it. Why? He's king. Let's break this down, shall we? Because you know what? We Christians love, oh, you are my king. We have no idea what we're saying. I want to break this down to you. I want to break it down. Let's, let's really have... What does this mean? Two questions this morning and we're done. First question. Is he your ultimate authority? Is he your ultimate authority? We're going to look at a couple passages in in Luke chapter 9. Very familiar passages to you. Luke chapter 9 verse 23. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life from me will save it. Now, why is this such a powerful, powerful truth as we ask, is Jesus my ultimate authority? 
This metaphor is a chilling metaphor. Everybody knows what crucifixion is. In your neighborhood, you're very accustomed to seeing somebody carry a cross and go somewhere. And the only thing that you knew is that guy that was carrying the cross and going somewhere was not coming back. There's inevitable death awaiting at the end of that journey. Jesus' point is very simple and clear. You want to follow me as king? That means that there is going to be death. Following me requires death. Death to what? Death to self-determination. Self-determination. Following King Jesus demands that we die to self-determination. To which you're going, what the heck does that mean? Here's what this means. It means that if Jesus is your king, you obey him, not because it makes sense or it looks wise, although it does, but simply because he says so. Let me say that one more time. You want to know if he's your king? We obey King Jesus not because it makes sense or because it looks wise, although it often does, but simply because he says so. Following King Jesus means that there's a transfer of ultimate authority from my will and my wisdom about these areas to his will and his wisdom about these areas. Let me dig a little deeper. The difference between having Jesus as your king and being a a generally moral, religious Christian is this. The word if. If. People who are generally moral and religious, but who ultimately retain control of their lives, live from the perspective of if. So their obedience is, I will obey you if it doesn't cost me that. I will obey you if it doesn't cost me my reputation. I will obey you if it doesn't cost me money. I will obey you if it doesn't mean I have to give that up. I will obey you if it doesn't mean I have to give this up. If there are any conditions or ifs to your obedience, you are still on the throne of your life. You're on the throne of your life. You're willing to consider God's recommendations. But ultimately, you're the one with the final decision-making authority. You're in control of your life. And yet Jesus says that the heart of following him as king means that there's a transfer of ultimate authority from your wisdom and will to God's wisdom and will. Can I just tell you how unbelievably far off we are from this? Can I just... Analogy, analogy. Uh, Josh, will you put up the slide, please? That's the galaxy. That's the galaxy. We are, we are here, not as in like us as people, but in that tiny little speck somewhere, there's Earth. Okay? Pretty big, isn't it? Like trying to wrap your brain, brain around our galaxy. Okay? Now, let me show you the next slide, please. Okay? The galaxy that we just had is one of those tiny little dots. Okay? Our gallant, one of those tiny little dots. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, listen very carefully, says, Jesus Christ holds all of that together by the word of his power. Question Is that somebody you ask into your life to be your personal assistant? Question. God says, hold, and all of that holds together. Is that somebody you go, I want you to be my consultant? 
I want you to be my assistant. And yet, that's how we treat him. Question. Is that the kind of person you invite into your life to go, I really know what I want to do. What do you think? Is that the kind of person you invite into your life and go, ah, take it or leave it. I don't know. Your wisdom. Your... Is that the kind of person you invite into your life to say, as long as it makes sense to me. He is either the Lord and the king of your life or the Bible says he is nothing at all. Is he your king? You see how big this is? See how ridiculous it is when we think about our relationship to our God. Here's the evaluation question. Here's the evaluation question. Am I willing to obey whatever this God says no matter how I feel about it? Am I willing to obey this God who holds all the head by the power of his word? That king of the universe. Is that somebody that we say, I'll obey you if? Or is that somebody we fall down and say, it doesn't even matter. I can't even understand it. But you say so. I obey. Your king. Your Lord. Does this sound difficult? Does it sound difficult? Can I make it even more difficult for you? Can we go a little further? Can we go a little deeper? Okay, okay. Let's go a little deeper about dying to self-determination, okay? Because this is an even more difficult challenge. I love John chapter 2. And we're not going to look at it. You just need to look. John chapter 2. There's this literary theological sort of juxtaposition. In John chapter 2, here's what we see. Verses 1 through 11 and 12 is Jesus turning water into wine. You guys familiar with that word, passage? Right afterwards, Jesus is in the temple and he is turning tables over. <laughs> whips he's driving out the money changers and the gospel writer john puts those two intentionally to go same jesus listen how many of you guys ever had the experience your christian life feels like he's preparing a feast he's turning water into wine joy delight party wonderful how many of us also know the other experience of why is Jesus coming into my life and flipping my tables over? Anybody? 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 <laughs> why is Jesus coming into my life and just disrupting this nice little life that I prepared for myself? Why is Jesus coming? And we think schizophrenic Jesus, one or the other, and yet the gospel writer John says, same Jesus. The same Jesus who answers prayers, brings joy, comes to the last minute, who does exactly what we want, fills our table, is the same Jesus who shows up and starts turning tables over. Now, here's the thing, though. Jesus never tells us why. Does anybody know what that feels like? Jesus never tells us why. Let me take you to this path. In John chapter 2, I'll show you this verse, right? It says, then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? In other words, there are these Jews who don't even believe that he's son of God, and yet they feel his authority. They sense his authority. And they're going, we sense it, we feel it, but why are you doing this? They're looking for an explanation. And Jesus just comes and says, I have the right, I have the authority. It's my prerogative. And if you're awake this morning and you're actually paying attention, can you relate? You go, Jesus, 
Why are you coming into my life and turning tables over? Why are you coming into my life and disrupting this nice little life that I have? Now, sometimes we bring it upon ourselves by dumb decisions we make. But there are other times when it feels like without rhyme or reason, Jesus is just turning the tables over. And many of us are standing going, if I just knew why. And Jesus goes, I have the right. I have the authority. It's my prerogative. Now, some of us are laughing, but this is very painful for some of us because we're sitting here this morning and going, that's me right now. Is it disturbing to you? Is that image of disturbing to you? Then think about someone like Job, right? Someone like Job. God allows his whole life to be turned over. And Job's complaining, saying, God, tell me why. If you would just tell me why you're overturning my life, then maybe I could handle it. But when God shows up, what does God say? God says stuff like this. Tell me, Job. Does lightning consult with you? What? <laughs> tell me, Job. Were you there when I threw the stars in the sky? What? I want to know why. Why are you doing this? What? And here's the amazing thing. At the end of the book, Job says, oh, I see. To which if you're a thinking person, you go, what the? See what? What do you see? Because the only thing God comes and says, Job, I'm God. Period. Here's the lesson that Job had to learn. And here's the lesson that you and I need to learn if Jesus is our king. Listen very carefully. It is critical that we obey God just because of who he is before we know why. Are you hearing me, church? It is critical if he's your king that we obey God just because of who he is before he tells us the reasons why. Does God have reasons? Of course our king has reasons, but it's spiritually critical. Some of us right now are spiritually spiritually struggling because we're fighting God and going until I know why no in the garden God says I've created everything enjoy it all one command don't eat from that tree God doesn't tell them why serpent comes and says it's my imitation of a serpent okay Sir, sir, serpent comes in. Sir, sir, serpent. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Serpent comes. The devil, Satan, comes and says, why? Why do you do? They go, we don't know why. Serpent says, if you don't know why, then why are you obeying? Some of you sitting here going, I'm hearing that voice. If you don't know why, why are you obeying? Anybody? Anybody? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I'm going to go a little deeper, okay, a little bit. Now, here's the question. Satan comes and says, why? They say, we don't know why. Now, many scholars have thought about what, what was it about the tree of knowledge, good and evil, that was so bad. And there's many different opinions. But here's one thing that they agree. God gives them the one command, and there was no other reason for it than the most important command of them all, which was what? Obey because I'm God and you're you. I have the right I have the authority. If you obey because you know the reasons, then you're just using me. Sounds strange to you? Does it sound strange to you? Okay, let me break it down. We're almost done with this part, okay? Give the devil his due. 
Because Satan has put something on, put, put his finger on something. Does anybody have the, ever have had the experience of, you know, you're higher up in your career, right? And there's somebody who's way lower, and they come, and they, they like you, they shower you with affection, all that, all that, all that, right? And then they realize that you're not going to open doors for them. And the next thing you know, wait, where'd you, where'd, you, where'd you go? Where'd you go? Where'd you go? And you realize you weren't loved for yourself. You were being networked. Hello, women dating a guy, getting a guy. You're the greatest thing since sliced bread. And then you realize, and then he realizes, oh, you're not going to sleep with me? You're not going to? And then you go, well, where, where, where'd he go? Where'd he go? And you realize what? You weren't being loved for you. You were being what? Love for it, whatever he can get. Now, here's the thing. Pastor Angela, you hear me? Here's the thing. Here's the thing. You could talk. Here's the thing. If you've been the object of one of these things, how do you feel? If you've been the object of something, one of these, how do you feel? We feel violated. We feel outraged. Because it feels a violation of almost humanity and dignity for us to go, you didn't love me for me? You love me for the things that I give you? You love me for the open doors? You love me for the sex? You love me for the money? But you didn't love me for me? You're just using me? Church, if God the creator comes to you and says, I am bringing something into your life and I want you to accept it because I am God. And you say, God, as long as I can see the reasons why, as long as I can see it's reasonable, God, as long as it advances my goals, my plans, my ambitions, then I can accept it. If I don't see it, then I can't accept it. All you're saying to God is, it's not you I want, it's the goals, it's the dreams. It's my wants. That's what I want, not you. And if you feel violated, why do we expect God to go, oh, you don't want me? I'm just a means to an end. Okay. Is he your king? This is why some people come to me and go, I'm really struggling, Pastor Peter. But man, I, I could handle this thing if God could just show me why. If God could just come and go, I know you're struggling, you're suffering right now. But you know what? And that's terrible. But you know what? Five years from now, this will happen. And ten years from now, that will happen. Some go, if I just knew five, ten, oh, then I know I could handle it. You know why God doesn't do that? Because if God tells you why, you wouldn't be doing it for him. You would be doing it for what you're going to get five years from now, ten years from now. And you wouldn't be serving God, you're serving yourself. I know this sermon is hard. I know it's hard to hear. And if there's a battle inside of you, it could be that he is not sitting on the throne of your life. And something and someone else is. The only way to be sure you're serving God for himself rather than for what you're going to get it's you got to be in a condition where serving God gives you nothing. No. Actually, I take it further. Where serving God gives you the opposite. Bad things are happening to you because you're serving God. Can I get an amen? Bad things are happening to you. Do you know why? Because it's the only way that you'll know. You're serving God for himself. You're obeying God for himself and not for When God says, I'm bringing something into your life just because of who I am, 
I have rights as your creator, as your redeemer, as your king. It is extremely important to see that maybe what God is doing is that there is no other reason but that he is God. And that's the most important reason of all. Are you learning to love God for who he is? You want it, don't you? To love and to be loved for who you are. To which you go, well, how could I trust him? How could I trust him? What he is bringing into my life? That I can... Because of the cross. Because of the cross. What he bled for me. What he did for me. How he died for me. This is the reason why I point you to this every Sunday. Because when we go through times and we don't know why, we can look at the cross and say, a loving, wise, sovereign God is for me. And no matter how difficult and how hard it may be right now, just as suffering led to resurrection and glory, so too will this lead to resurrection and glory. That's how you could trust him. Even when you don't know why. So here's an evaluative question. Am I willing to thank God for whatever happens in this area, whether I understand it or not? Am I willing to thank God for whatever happens in this area, whether I understand it or not? Is Jesus your ultimate authority? Second question, and then we're done. Is Jesus your ultimate priority? Is King Jesus your ultimate priority? Luke chapter 9, verse 57 the same passage as Jesus talking about what it means to follow him. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, first let, the, let, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. Ouch. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus would have become a terrible salesman. Anybody in sales? Jesus would have been terrible at sales. He doesn't take and undertake a sales job in order to recruit people, does he? Absolutely not. If anything, he wants to shoo them away. His response to the men is rather off-putting. The first guy says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to live. What is he saying? He's saying, do you know about the rigor and difficulty of following me? Do you know about the rigor, really, the rigor and difficulty of following me? He says, I want you to go home and really, really think about it. Can you imagine what would happen if in our retreat settings where we became Christians? I always talk about this, right? When I was like 11 years old, the guest speaker comes and his, and his invitation isn't, anybody want Jesus? Don't you want him to come into your heart? Can you imagine a preacher going, foxes have holes and the bird. What? What is he talking about? Are you sure you want to be a Christian? Are you sure you want to follow him? Go and think about it. Go and think about it. We're not going to do this tonight. Go and think about it. Go back to your cabins. Go back to your dorm rooms. I want you to pray and think about it. Come next day. Do you want to be a Christian? You're not ready yet. Go home and think about it. I want you to think really, really hard. If somebody had done that to us, I think we might think a little bit more seriously about what it means to follow him as king. Because the reality is some of us were done disservice because after that, it's been a challenge and a battle ever since going, he's my king and not just my savior. 
He's my king and not just my savior. The second and third guy, what does he say? He says what? First let me go and bury my father. Second guy says, first let me go and say goodbye to my family. They seem reasonable. Why, 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 why does Jesus do what he, why, why does he say what he says? You got to understand, in order to understand the context, that we're talking about an extremely patriarchal, family-oriented, traditional society. There's no you outside of family. There's no success, no, fa- no future, no, fa- no life, no identity, no hope apart from your family. Your family is everything. And what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I have to have priority over family. Everything else is second. Some of us are going and saying goodbye to my parents. I would love to do that, like forever. But here's what this means for you. Jesus comes and says, I have to be priority over your career. Everything is second. I have to be priority over your romantic relationship. Everything is second. I have to priority over your ministry. Everything comes second. I have to have priority over your future goals and ambitions. Everything comes second. Jesus is saying, you want a relationship with me? All-absorbing, limitless in commitment, consumed with me. Do you want that? That's Jesus' question. Knowing me, loving me, serving me, resembling me, becoming the supreme passion of your life, everything else coming second. Jesus says to us, you want to worship me as king? It's going to radically alter the priority in every area of your life. He is your ultimate hope. He is your ultimate significance. He is your ultimate security. He is your ultimate identity. He becomes your life. You're all in all. And some of us sitting here this morning are paralyzed because we have put all our baskets in that one basket of career, of jobs, of future, of marriage. And that thing that we have put all of our priorities on is being shaken. And we're sitting there going, my life feels meaningless. Of course our life feels meaningless if the thing that we have found meaning in is gone. Of course our life feels empty and void if the thing that fills us and gives us significance is no longer there. He's sitting there going, well, what's my priority, Peter? I think Jesus is. I'll tell you what your priority is. If there are any ifs to your obedience, the rest of the sentence shows you what your real priority is. I'll obey you if my career thrives. Your career is your priority. I'll obey you if my health is good. Your health is your priority. I'll obey you if my family is, is together. Your family is your priority. Whatever is on the other side of the if that keeps you from a passionate, radically abandoned, full-out surrender, obedient life to Jesus, whatever's on the other side is your real priority and the real Savior King of your life. Here's one. Can I just talk about this real quick? I don't have a lot of time. Church like ours... There's some of you going, I'll obey God if he'll get married. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm glad like a third of you caught that and two-thirds of you are like zoning out. (laughs) If you're a Christian this morning, you're saying, I'll obey God if he will get me married. That means your ultimate hope, your ultimate significance rests in being married and not in knowing God. And you're building your entire life on that. And Jesus in Luke chapter 9 says, if you build your life on anything, anything else but me, anything in the world more than on me, you will lose your very self. 
you're not even going to know who you are. Some of you sitting here going, I don't even know who I am. You have 10 different identities in your life. Why? Why? There's another Savior King in your life that's giving you identity. And you don't even know who you are. What good is it to gain the whole world, Jesus says, and lose your very soul? Can I get painfully specific this morning? I don't know why I felt led to share this, so I'm going to share it, even if it like speaks to five of you. The Bible in common sense says that you should not wittingly marry a person who has no faith in Jesus, who doesn't love Jesus. If Jesus is the love and center of your life, then anybody who doesn't share that passion will fundamentally misunderstand who you are, what makes you really tick. So if you have an opportunity to date somebody who is not a Christian, you have an opportunity to marry somebody who is a terrific catch in every other sense of the word, but is not a passionate follower of Jesus, but you date him or her anyway, you marry him or her anyway, it means two things. Number one, despite all your compliance with Jesus and his teaching, if you're willing to date and marry someone who doesn't share the same passion of Jesus as you, you either don't expect that person to be your best friend or Jesus is not the center of your life. Just call it what it is. Jesus and his role in your life is not all that critical to you or you don't expect this person to be your best friend. I mean, how can you have depth? How can you have intimacy with someone who doesn't understand the foundational motivations of what makes you tick? Does that make any sense? How can somebody be your best friend? And to me, personal opinion, somebody you marry, they ought to be your best friend. How can somebody be your best friend with you who doesn't know you to your depths, to your deep intimacy? Why should you only date and seriously marry a Christian? Some people will say, well, it just narrows down a list of candidates. No, it just deepened your understanding of what a marriage is. It just forced you not to be superficial. Why do I bring this up? Because if Jesus isn't your king, your dating relationships, if Jesus is not your king, hey, you're going to find people, you're going to find people and date people who cannot possibly understand his authority in your life and what makes you tick. And secondly, if Jesus is not your king, someone else, something else will be your savior king and they will be relationship after relationship after relationship after relationship. If you do not have the freedom, if you do not have the freedom to say, do I really want to be married? Do I really want to be involved in a relationship? Ultimately, I don't need this to be complete, be happy, to feel significant. Because Jesus is my Savior, King, and not this. If you can't say that, though you may say you believe the gospel at one level and you've sought his salvation from the record of your sins, the gospel, my friend, has not sunk all the way down. And the result, you're going to look at other Savior kings in your life to go, I need that, I need that, I need that. Because there are other competing saviors in your life, there are going to be other competing kings. Want to know what your savior king is? Listen to your ifs, to your obedience. I'll obey you if. That points to the ultimate savior king in your life. Let me end with this. There are people who get all worked up about what it means to have Christ as king. There are some of you too as well going, 
man, this sermon, Peter, all oh, the whole authority thing and submission to him and da-da-da-da-da to make him the priority and give him authority and control. You go, I don't want to give up control, okay? I'm fine. I don't want to give up control. That sounds really threatening. Can I tell you something? You are not in control of your life. You are not in control of your life. It's an illusion for you to think that you are in control of your life. Every single one of us in this room is living for something. And whatever that something is, is controlling us. The true king of our lives. It is an illusion and a fallacy for you to think, I am independence. Your independence was gone the moment you were born. Your independence is gone the moment you were born. You have given your independence to something or to someone. There's not a single person in here who says, I am totally, utterly unfettered and free. You are enslaved and bound by something or someone. And every other Savior King says, give your life for it. Blood, sweat, and tears to earn me. And our Savior King comes and says, I paid with my blood, sweat, and tears. Not to bound you, but to set you free. There's not a sin. So, I don't want to give up control. You don't have control of your life. Something, someone is controlling you. You want to argue about that with me? Come talk. We'll talk after the service. You go, I am totally free. I'm unfettered. I have no... We'll talk after. (laughs) Many of us, many of us, here's the evaluative question. Here's the evaluative question. Is there something in this area that I'm relying on more than God for my hope, for my meaning and significance in life? Carlton, please come on up. We're finishing up here. The gospel is not about following advice, you guys. Listen, please listen. The gospel is not about following advice. It's being called to follow a king. A king. Not just a king with power and authority to tell you what you need to do. But we serve a king with the power and authority to do what needs to be done. Paying for our sins and the sins of the world. And offers to us salvation, forgiveness as a gift. We're not called to follow rules and advice. We're called to follow a king. Do you realize that Jesus is the only Savior King who has willingly given his life for you to set you free? To set you free from the enslaving power of sin and idolatry false savior kings in our lives who do nothing but oppress us. Some of you savior king, you're going, if I just have that, I'll be okay. And you don't get it, so you're angry, you're empty, you're unhappy. And then you do get it, and you realize you're more empty and more unhappy than before you had it. Our savior king, and I can't wait to talk about this next week, going to come back he's going to slay the dragon he's going to kiss us and wake us up out of our deep sleep and set us free from imprisonment in the tower this king says he will come back to put everything right 
And until he does, he says, I've come into your life, not just to be your personal assistant, 